But in 2018, the mass mobilizations that led up to the vote had millions in the streets and was dubbed the Green Tide um, because of the campaign signature color, visually represented by the, by the pañuelos. Um, and if you if you were in Argentina at the time, you could see the pañuelos literally everywhere. People wore them around their necks, around their wrists, on their handbags, on their purses. You could buy them literally at every single corner store. It was, it was truly a mass movement in, in a true, true sense. Um, and abortion became the issue that the streets imposed on politics. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, and welcome to this event discussing um, abortion and international strategy. Uh, my name is Sarah Leonard. I'm publisher and one of the editors of Lux Magazine, a socialist feminist glossy magazine named for Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, we're coming together at a time when access to abortion in the U.S. is at a dismal low. An estimated 11 million people seeking an abortion in the U.S. now live more than an hour's drive from an abortion clinic, and a handful of states have only one clinic left. We all know that there's a thicket of state laws making it difficult, expensive, and exhausting to get abortion care. And it's pretty clear also, and this is relevant to our conversation today, that many of the strategies of large, well-funded pro-choice institutions that lobby, support Democrats, hold the occasional rally, are really not working. And so we're very lucky today to be hearing from our speakers who can bring other strategic perspectives from the fights for abortion rights in Ireland and in Argentina. Um, for a little bit of context, in late 2020, feminists in Argentina won their decades-long fight to legalize abortion. In 2018, Ireland's victorious movement um, succeeded in repealing, uh, sorry, movement to repeal the Eighth Amendment led to a historic referendum vote that marked a huge shift in public support for state legal abortion. Um, and these have really been the vi victories of movements. Um, as Clara Daly said in a speech after the referendum to her elected colleagues, and I encourage everyone to watch this speech on YouTube, this has been an uphill battle, pushing a boulder uphill over decades, and nobody in here was involved in pushing it up. So before we get to our um, quite amazing speakers, I just want to thank the sponsors of this event, all of which are committed to this particular struggle, and say a few words about each, and then we will launch right in. So... Um, Chicago for Abortion Rights is a network of activists that mobilizes local pro-choice forces through visible public protests to demand safe, legal, and accessible abortion for all. They also build collaborative spaces to challenge the anti-choice right. Chicago Abortion Fund advances reproductive autonomy and justice for everyone by providing financial, logistical, and emotional support to people seeking abortion services and by building collective power and fostering partnerships for political and cultural change. Um, find out more at chicagoabortionfund.org. 
The Chicago DSA Socialist Feminist Working Group works with Chicago DSA and in the community to address the ways that capitalism oppresses some groups in different ways than others and to bring an explicitly socialist feminist perspective to the fight for a better world. Their work includes initiatives like fundraising for the Chicago Abortion Fund, exposing crisis pregnancy centers, and hosting educational events like this one and reading groups about socialist feminism. And finally, um, Lutz is a new socialist feminist magazine. We say it's sex with class. It's a glossy print magazine, and if you subscribe now, you'll get the first issue, the, the very first debut. Um, and right now, you can visit our website, lux-magazine.com, um, to read Pregnancy and Abortion, an incredible manifesto of reproductive freedom from the 1970s Italian feminist movement, which we've just translated. Um, so thank you for bearing with me. Um, and now for our speakers. Uh, Camila Baya is an editor, translator, and writer in New York. She is a member of NYC for Abortion Rights, and she'll be presenting about the abortion rights struggle in Argentina. Claire Daly is an independent member of the European Parliament, elected from Dublin, Ireland, former member of the Irish Parliament, and mover multiple pieces of legislation for abortion rights in Ireland, and she's a longstanding activist on the issue. She'll be presenting on the fight for abortion rights in Ireland. Um, so each speaker will speak for about 10 to 15 minutes, um, and then we're going to have a conversation. Um, I'll be, you know, carefully watching the clock like a hawk. Um, that's my job. Um, and so I thought we could start with Claire um, and launch right in. Great stuff. And thanks very much, Sarah. And it's a privilege for me uh, to be here with everybody tonight. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I suppose in starting out, we could say that given that Ireland stood out as probably the most restrictive abortion uh, scenario in Europe less than three years ago to a scenario where now we have abortion available on request up to 12 weeks free as part of the health service, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this was a short battle. And I suppose my first message is to say that it wasn't. This was a struggle over decades. I mean, abortion has been, had been up to 2018 outlawed in Ireland, um, up to uh, penal servitude for life under the 1867 Offences Against the Persons Act. But that wasn't even good enough for the Irish state in the early 1980s, seeing developments that were taking place in the US in particular, with Roe versus Wade and so on, they were afraid that an Irish judiciary later on might interpret uh, the situation and allow abortion in limited circumstances. So in 1983, there was a campaign to insert a prohibition in our constitution, to be sure, to be sure, as it were, that there would never be uh, abortion in Ireland. And really since that time of its implementation, there was a struggle to remove it. And I think it is important to say that many campaigns over the decades, many women suffered uh, under this scenario uh, and the law was tested. But I suppose the issue really snowballed around 2011 or so on. And that's the period maybe that I will concentrate on the most, because while the courts did interpret our constitution to say that it was possible to have limited abortion where a woman's life was in danger, there were so many tragedies and mishaps along the way that uh, the movement was always there in the background. And in 2010, the European Court of Human Rights ruled in favour of three women who challenged Ireland's abortion laws. 
It was known as the A, B and C judgment. And this put pressure on Ireland to legislate for abortion where a woman's life was in danger, which they hadn't been doing for decades, despite ordinary people uh, campaigning uh, for that scenario. I suppose I was fortunate at that time to be elected to the parliament and myself and some colleagues initiated legislation to put pressure on uh, our parliament to legislate, even in these limited circumstances, which was permissible under the constitution. And it's ironic to think that we're talking about less than 10 years ago, when this first piece of legislation was moved in my name, and only 20 out of 160 members of parliament voted for it. So it was absolutely trounced less than 10 years ago. However, what it did allow was a conversation in society. And many people came forward at that time. In a, a, the most popular talk show in the country, The Late Late Show, saw four women who had recently traveled to the UK for terminations in cases where the pregnancy had a fatal fetal abnormality, went on that talk show <coughs> and declared themselves as people who had had an abortion. And mad as it might seem, that was the first time anybody in Ireland said, hello, my name is Mary Claire, whatever, I had an abortion. And it was like a sea change. It allowed the conversations to start happening because 150,000 Irish women had, trans, had traveled outside the state to access abortion in the UK primarily for so many reasons over three decades, but their stories were not told. And once the conversation started, it was almost like you couldn't put a lid on it. Uh, that, that was really important because what it did was debunk the myth that the anti-choice lobby says this, oh, abortion is just, you know, cavalier women just open the floodgates, all of this nonsense. What it allowed was conversations about the complex decision-making that women face when they have an unwanted pregnancy. It allowed us to recognise Ireland's abortion reality, because, of course, Ireland, like everywhere else in the world, has abortion. It was only the choice between safe or unsafe abortion, or in an Irish context, the hypocrisy of you could have an abortion in Ireland. Actually, our constitution provided for it, but you had to go outside the country to get it, which really wasn't very far removed from the way Ireland treated people in the past, where they locked up women with unwanted pregnancies in so-called mother and baby homes or Magdalene laundries, where their children were taken from them uh, and so on. So this conversation challenged all the myths that were out there. And it actually emboldened people to begin to say, do you know what? We are the silent majority. For too long, the anti-choice lobby had been organized by big finance, um, the church, and if you like, sort of militarily marshaled, that if there was any sniff of a legislative change, they would marshal their troops. They'd descend down on the politicians and basically tell them, go here and you're going to lose votes. But actually, the majority of people are in favour of abortion. They're in favour of trusting women. Uh, they're not unkind people. So once you put that into its uh, real sense, that became a counterweight to the anti-choice uh, lobby. Of course, what happened then in 2012, while we had the first mobilizations for choice in a proactive way, uh, sadly, late in 2012 as well, uh, 
Savita Halapanavar, a woman who was uh, pregnant but who was um, miscarrying, uh, had sepsis and her pregnancy wasn't terminated because the fetus had a heartbreak beat and she sadly died. Her death sent shockwaves throughout Ireland and internationally and got people up off their knees. So what we had was a coming together of ordinary people who silently dealt with their abortion reality by traveling away, by not talking about it, saying enough. The hypocrisy has to end. We have to do something about this. And the pressure then came on the political establishment to remove the constitution, to allow the people have a say over Ireland's abortion uh, reality. I think to prepare the ground for that and a lesson for everybody in the States or wherever is the base of activism that is absolutely necessary. And that this campaign must be rooted in science, in human rights legislation and in women's stories. And I think that's what the campaign in Ireland did really successfully. We had doctors for choice, doctors who wanted to provide uh, the uh, service, who came and talked about the science of terminations and debunked a lot of of the myths and the um, sort of hyper, um, you know, the craziness that goes on with some uh, of the others. We had lawyers for choice who explained about the legal legalities that were necessary to deal with this situation. And of course, we had many women's groups, trade unions, uh, refugee organizations, and all the rest of it coming together under a broad umbrella to deal uh, with Ireland's abortion reality. And we went from a situation then of in 2012, having two and a half thousand people on the March for Choice, by 2017, it had grown to 40,000 people. And that counterweight to the anti-choice lobby was beginning to show itself. I think one of the other tactics that was quite useful was the appeals to the international human rights monitoring bodies, whose hearings and reports were a source of real embarrassment for the Irish state. And this was something that could play on. So I do think, seen as where we are tonight, the idea of international solidarity is key Uh, in this struggle and we should make the most of it. So all of that impacted into a scenario where the Irish uh, government and it became an electoral issue, were the government or the prospective government going to give the people a choice on uh, our referendum? And that, that the ground was prepared for that. Some good initiatives that were taken was the idea of a constitutional convention, which was a public hearing of citizens randomly selected off the electoral poll who uh, conducted hearings in public. So it was on television, people could watch it, but basically a hundred random citizens were brought together in a public gathering. They were exposed to international experts, to medical experts, to legal experts, to women who travel, to women who were against abortion. And they heard all the evidence in a calm, rational manner, and they made their findings. And the media and the politicians were going, oh my God, they're so radical. Their findings have gone way beyond what we thought. But actually, that isn't true. It was the politicians who were lagging behind and were afraid of rocking the status quo, but actually the people were well ahead of them. They just hadn't been given a vehicle to express that. So that was hugely important because it gave a cushion, if you like, to the cowardly politicians to hide behind there saying, oh, it's not really us. We're just kind of listening to what the constitutional uh, convention came up with. uh, And it gave them a bit of backbone. Another good idea was a cross-party special committee 
was set up involving all parties and none in the two houses of parliament to again, if you like, go through that process publicly. So I think there was about 20 of us. I was a member of the committee, maybe 20, 24 of us. Uh, who made the journey through those public hearings again. And it was quite illuminating to see the evidence, to see some politicians who've been vehemently anti-choice, some older men and that, actually listening to the evidence and changing their position. And that was really uh, good as well. And all of that prepared the ground then for the referendum itself. As I said, those activist-based campaigning groups of doctors and women and so many organisations did the heavy lifting in that referendum and the people uh, gave a, a, a very strong uh, resounding uh, decision to lift the restriction on abortion in our constitution. And they did it knowing that should they do that, the government was going to legislate uh, for access to abortion pretty much on request under 12 weeks free as part of the health service. And, and that is actually what happened. So we have a situation now where it's a GP-led service uh, with additional uh, services uh, available at sexual and reproductive health clinics. So abortion is now provided free by more than 300 uh, general practitioner doctors. 10 out of the 19 maternity uh, hospitals in the country provided, which is actually a remarkable transformation from a situation where 12 women a day were traveling to seek abortions. In 2019, we had 6,600 people accessing abortion services in Ireland, 94% of them before 10 weeks, proving, as we've always said, that if abortion is made accessible, then people will access it early if they can. And it's interesting to point out that during the COVID pandemic, Ireland was actually only one of three countries in Europe which allowed tele-consultations um, for abortion. Incredible. One of three that we did that. So a woman just needed to ring her doctor in COVID and she would have access to abortion. So an incredible transformation and really positive. But I don't want to con people into thinking that it's a bed of roses because it isn't, because although that's heartening, considering where we started, the situation still has very serious uh, flaws, mostly thanks to political cowardice. Um, and it's unnecessarily cumbersome um, in many uh, ways, particularly after the first trimester. There are barriers, like a three-day waiting period that serves no legitimate purpose at all. It is a problem uh, in terms of access now because um, there's no exception in the law for somebody who crosses the 12-week time limit during the, the three-day waiting period. Uh, so as a result, rural women who have to travel long distances to visit a doctor, the waiting thing means they have to make multiple visits. Uh, huge difficulties then for women in vulnerable situations, asylum seekers, victims of domestic violence, women living in poverty or homeless and so on. And obviously that's been made worse by coronavirus. So in 2019, the abortion support network heard from 25 people in Ireland who were turned away from the service at fewer than three days past the legal limit. So if that waiting period hadn't been there, they would have been able to access it free, uh, legal and local, which needs to be uh, addressed. I think as well, the uh, grounds for accessing abortion after 12 weeks are really narrow 
and they're definitely not human rights compliant for the threshold of accessing care under the, the life and health grounds. So you can get it after 12 weeks if the woman's life or health is in danger. But really, the bar for that is set incredibly high. And only 21 abortions were provided under that ground in the first year of service. So really, people can't really get it uh, after 12 weeks. There's horrendous problems as well in the areas of serious fetal abnormalities, which is really problematic and has put on really unworkable restrictions on doctors. So after the 12 week limit, passes and somebody wants to terminate a pregnancy with serious fetal abnormalities, they can only do so if two doctors agree with the diagnosis, which means that the fetus is likely to die before or within 28 days of birth. Now, and it's done in a way in which the pressure is put on doctors to err on the side of conservatism because breaches of the law are still criminally penalised, albeit not with a penalty of penal servitude for life, but 14 years. And while they can say, oh, that would never happen, however, it is still there in uh, the law. So this meant that a lot of women who were in that situation uh, with non-viable pregnancies had to travel. I mean, there was a horrific case in the last number of weeks where a man had to go public about the situation that his wife was in, where they were told that the fetus was unlikely to survive uh, labor, that if the baby did survive, it would maybe only live minutes or, or hours before they passed away. And during that time, they'd struggle. In the more unlikely event that the child might live a couple of months, the maximum would be a year. And during that time, they would never be able to move their arms or legs, never be able to speak, never be able to feed themselves. And at no point would they ever recognize their parents. But their termination could not be facilitated in Ireland and they had to travel. So of 30 uh, people who went to the campaigning group terminations for medical uh, reasons for advice last year in scenarios like this one, 85% of those people had to travel uh, still for that. So there's still huge uh, problems there. Going to the UK is a devastating option for people in these circumstances and so on. So look at the situation we're at now is we're coming up to a three-year review of the legislation. That's about to start. Um, the review has its own problems uh, in that it's going to be carried out by the Department of Health rather than an outside independent body. But in any case, it gives an opportunities for campaigners and groups to put the pressure on the government to improve it further and ensure it's fit for purpose because the other aspects have gone uh, very well. The, the, the last point I'll make maybe and touch on briefly is what's happening briefly in the north of Ireland because some people will have probably known that at the same time as Ireland repealed the Eighth Amendment, there was a lot of talk about how the North is next. So the North of Ireland is governed still under the UK, which is a whole other story for people who don't know that. So we're not even going to go there. But basically, thanks to the collapse of power sharing in Northern Ireland, a vacuum was left there and a clever bit of legislative manoeuvring from a Labour MP in the UK uh, meant that moves were being made to provide the service in uh, Northern Ireland. So on paper, abortions can be carried out in the North in all circumstances up to week 12 of pregnancy and until uh, week 24, if continuing the pregnancy would injure uh, a woman's physical or mental health uh, without a time limit in cases of severe or fatal uh, fetal abnormalities or a risk to the life of the woman. But we have to be honest about it, that is just on paper. 
there has actually been no moves whatsoever to actually commission or provide the services in the north. So uh, uh, northern women generally used to travel to the UK. Now the tables have turned and actually some of them can come south as well, which is great, but they need the service uh, in the north. The uh, UK government has stepped up to create regulations which would compel the Northern Ireland Department of Health to meet its legal obligations regarding the introduction of abortion services, but we'll see how that goes. I mean, we have a hyper-conservative Northern Ireland um, Democratic Unionist Party who passed a bill a few weeks ago to remove um, uh, the possibility of a termination being carried out without a time limit in cases of fatal fetal abnormalities. And unfortunately, thanks to the abstention of Sinn Féin, something that caused a lot of problems for feminists and that, given that they supported the legislation in the South, uh, that um, legislation in interfered with the situation there. But look, at, um, I have to say that's going to go to the courts again in the North with the passage of that bill. There'll be more delay, more torture for women there. But at the same time, uh, while acknowledging that North and South, the battle isn't over, I suppose the key message I'd like to make to people and people, activists in the States know that it's never over because the establishment is always going to try and claw back the victories that are won. And the only forces capable of delivering a step forward is organizing the ordinary people, the women, the men, the working class people, the refugee uh, women and so on, and all of the people who need that service, confident in the knowledge that people are decent. They don't want to harm or hurt women. So when they hear women's stories and women's voices are allowed to be heard, then that is the armory that can create a movement capable of embarrassing uh, sort of spineless politicians into taking action because the world over, politicians generally only care about getting themselves re-elected re rather than changing anything. So um, keep up doing what you're doing, keep organising. Uh, that's the only power we've got and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thank you for that. Um Excellent kickoff. Um, and now we're going to turn to uh, Camila to talk about the situation in Argentina, and then we're going to draw some comparisons and have a discussion. Thank you, Saren. Thank you, Claire. Um, it also just started hailing outside my window. So if I sound a little fuzzy, that's why I put on my headphones. Hopefully that's better. Um, but I first wanted to start, um, John has my slides on slide two. I'm just going to play a video that kind of explains um, what happened when the, the bill was passed on December 30th of 2020 in Argentina that legalized um, abortion. Sabemos que es muy necesaria porque se siguen muriendo mujeres, chicas, eh, en condiciones clandestinas y lo que queremos es salvar esas vidas justamente. El debate es clandestino o legal, no hay otro debate. Diciéndonos, tenemos hoy la posibilidad. 
existe, todos somos conscientes, sea legal o ilegal el aborto exista, es real. Eh, pero creo que es un país que lo va a utilizar como medio anticonceptivo y que va a ser una masacre. people in Argentina took to the streets. Um, and on December 30th, 2020, the Argentinian Senate voted in favor of legalizing abortion until the 14th week of pregnancy, making it the largest Latin American country to pass abortion legislation. And it was, as Claire said, a culmination of decades of feminist, feminist organizing that had patiently laid the groundwork for this victory. So Argentina's national campaign for the right to legal, safe and free abortion, and that's the whole name of the campaign, which I think is very telling, especially as someone who organizes around abortion in the United States. Um, and it's just kind of focused on the, on the legal side, not the safe and free necessarily. Um, was launched in 2005 at the National Women's Gathering, which is an annual event that has been happening since 1986 and is the home base for the feminist movement, both in Argentina, but also in the region. In the, last, in the recent years, has numbered up to 80,000 attendees, both from Argentina and internationally and from the region. So two years after its founding in 2007, the campaign brought together a coalition of more than 500 organizations and unions and groups and just individuals unaffiliated and coalesced around the now famous three demands, um, which is also the campaign slogan, sex education to decide, contraception not to abort, and legal abortion not to die. And this movement gained what we could call a mass character over the last five or so years. Um, and in slide five, you can actually see a picture of the pañuelo or, or the handkerchief that is the symbol of, of the campaign and the movement. It has, has the title at the top and then the, the three demands around its logo. So in, in Argentina, any legislation that's presented to the government, it has what is called parliamentary status for two years, which means that if it's not taken up by the government and not discussed and deliberated on in that time frame, you have to present it all over again. It elapses. Um, so since 2005, the campaign has presented the abortion bill to Congress on eight different occasions, right? Every time it failed, they presented it again. And it failed to reach a vote every single time except for the last two, in 2018 and then again in 2020. So the bill was only debated in Congress for the first time in March 2018 under the center-right government of Mauricio Macri after 12 years of a center-left government, eight of which was under uh, a woman president. And in, in later, the, the Chamber of Deputies, which is uh, the lower house of Congress in Argentina, voted against it by a narrow margin. And then it was taken up again in 2020. Um, and finally, finally passed and was legalized. But in 2018, the mass mobilizations that led up to the vote had millions in the streets and was dubbed the green tide um, because of the campaign signature color, visually represented by the, by the pañuelos. Um, and if you if you were in Argentina at the time, you could see the pañuelos literally everywhere. People wore them around their necks, around their wrists, on their handbags, on their purses. You could buy them literally at every single corner store. It was, it was truly a mass movement in, in a true, true sense. Um, and abortion became the issue that the streets imposed on politics, especially in a deeply Catholic country where the Pope is from. And after the bill was passed in December, um, people were saying, you know, do you remember when they picked an Argentinian Pope? 
and we asked ourselves if we would ever see the day where abortion was would become legal in our country, and it really did seem impossible. Um, but you know, here we are. Um, and slide three has pictures from the night the bill passed in December. So just a little bit about the bill itself, some key features. Um, the bill allows abortion up to 14 weeks. And after 14 weeks, it's still criminalized, except for in cases of rape and incest. It has a 10-day window um, to receive the abortion, although it's not exactly a waiting period. Maybe we can talk about that in discussion. Um, it also allows for conscientious objection from medical professionals, which is one of the biggest concessions of the bill. So people are allowed to refuse to perform abortions, even though someone else has to legally give you an abortion. It just doesn't have to be that person. Um, one important thing that I want to emphasize is that the bill that passed is not the legislation that was developed by the campaign. So the bill that was demanded in by the movement in the streets was the one that was crafted collectively by these over 500 organizations that are part of the campaign. Um, and it was a bill that decriminalized abortion full stop. No term limits. Um, it also included things like the window of time between asking for an abortion and receiving it to be five days maximum instead of 10 days. Um, there are also some, some other parts of it. But what was passed was essentially a watered down version of what the campaign demanded. And the movement developed its bill around the core idea that abortion is a fundamental democratic human right, just like any other form of health care, that everybody should be guaranteed. And I say this not to diminish the victory, but to draw out the, the dynamics of the moment. So you have a mass radicalization, uh, especially among young people, a religious right that is also mobilizing and in a country where the Catholic Church is structurally tied to the state. Um, they have direct access to the government. They have a hand in drafting the laws in a way that's different than the U.S., for example. And they have a new center-left government also divided on the question of, of abortion, but with sections that are centrally involved in the movement. The government is not outside the campaign, right? Um, so the movement for abortion in Argentina and its victory in the passage of the bill is historic but I would argue is now entering a new stage, which is also what Claire was saying, of, of following the legalization, we have to make sure that the, the fight to defend bodily autonomy um, is continued and is in fact never over. And now the task is to make sure that the bill is enforced, right? That there are enough people who know how to perform abortions, all these things, um, that the abortion pill become available uh, in different parts of Argentina, even the more rural parts, et cetera, and that the right is confronted and that the church um, can still stay out of people's right to health care. So the thing to understand about Argentina in general is that it's a highly organized, highly mobilized society. And this goes back to the way that the dictatorship um, was defeated. It was the country in Latin America where the dictatorship uh, was broken by struggle from below, unlike, for example, Chile. Uh, oh, and it was a woman-led struggle around questions of bodily autonomy and reproductive justice in its own way, right? In a different way, but it's in its own way. And this collective memory is the basis for what I would argue are some of the most, some of the strongest working class movements in the world. Um, so I spoke a little bit about the formation of the national campaign in 2005, but the, the struggle for legalization of abortion actually goes back much further. And ever since 1983, uh, when the dictatorship was overthrown, there have been people who organized around the issue of abortion, and it's been a constant. Um, so actually in slide six, um, I have pictures of the first march for the legalization of abortion during the period of formal democracy in Argentina, uh, International Women's Day, March 8th, 1984. 
uh, in Buenos Aires, which is the capital of the country. And these organizers highlighted the fact that abortions happen whether they are legal or not, and attempted to reclaim the issue as one of public health and democracy, right? So not one of a fetus life, with that when a fetus life begin or doesn't begin, uh, but actually that it's a democratic right that should be extended to everybody and, you know, framings that we might be familiar with today. So just to give a sense of the context and the reality of abortion, both in Argentina and in the region more broadly, I want to take a minute to just look at some numbers and statistics, even though they're imprecise, obviously, because abortion is illegal in most of the region. Um, but data shows that there are around 500,000 abortions every year in Argentina, which is around 40% of, pre of pregnancies. Every three hours, a girl between 10 and 14 years old is forced to carry a pregnancy to term. Over 39,000 people were hospitalized in 2018 due to problems from botched abortions and miscarriages. Six of the eight countries in the world where you can go to prison for having an abortion are in the Americas. Fewer than 3% of the entire region lives where abortion is broadly legal. So most abortions are performed illegally and therefore usually unsafely, making it the second highest cause of death for women in South America. Just astronomical numbers. And many women also, as Claire talked about, are criminalized for having abortions and many spend time in prison, um, usually being reported by medical professionals who are trying to save their own asses, you know. Um, so you can start to get a sense of what this does, right? The impact it has on an entire society when people don't have access to abortion. The rate and ways that people die are almost inconceivable, but it also means that people are going to resist because their lives literally depend on it. Um, so now I just want to spend some time briefly, very briefly, <laughs> talking about two historical threads that I see running through the abortion movement in Argentina and its recent victory. One is the, the role played by the Latin American movement against femicide, uh, which is called Ni Una Menos, which translates to not one less. And in Argentina in particular, it erupted in 2015. And I think it encapsulates so well the intersections of gendered violence, both against femicide, as well as what is essentially state-sanctioned murder against people who are pregnant and don't want to be. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of broader insistence that women are full human beings who don't belong to their partners, who have a right to life and health and to make their own complicated decisions. Um, and the rise of the movement against femicides was a real turning point for the abortion rights movement because it combined the organization that was rooted and building over time with an opportunity to grow into a mobilized kind of force of nature. So in slide seven, I just have some statistics around violence against women in Argentina and the region. Um, just to pull one, in Argentina, a woman is killed every 36 hours by her partner or husband. Um, seven of the 10 countries with the highest rates of femicide are in Latin America. And the numbers, we can just go on and on. Um, so you combine all of these things and have a really explosive reality. And... Um, this latest phase in the fight for abortion in Argentina, culminating in the legalization victory, is rightfully seen as a continuation of and a part of the New Menos movement. Um, and it completely changed the terrain of struggle and the confidence, which Claire also talked about confidence around speaking out against these issues, not being silent, um, as well as you know, raising broader questions around the economic and social system as a whole. And so femicide and access to abortion are intimately tied together around, you know, those fundamental questions of bodily autonomy and the recognition of women's humanity as whole people. But they're also tied together in like very concrete lived experiences of people. And actually the way 
that Ni Una Menos erupted in Argentina in 2015, um, the body of Diana Garcia, 19 years old, was found by the roadside, and her remains were inside of a trash bag. And a few months later, after a three-day search, the body of Chiara Paez, 14 years old, and a few weeks pregnant, was found buried in the garden of her boyfriend's home. He was 16, and it was later found out that Chiara had been beaten to death after having been forced to take medication to terminate her pregnancy, and her boyfriend confessed um, to the murder, as well as having been helped by his mother. Um, and on the day they found Chiara's body, um, Argentinian women took to the streets and rallied around the slogan and hashtag Nuna Menos. Um, I'm going to kind of skip over stuff that happened after that because I think I'm running out of time. But there was a, finally a registry of femicides was set up. Um, statistics were starting to be compiled. Basically, the massive turnout showed that looking away on a societal level was really no longer an option. Um, they also did kind of... Uh, for the first seven women, women's mass strike in response to the murder in 2016 of a 16-year-old Lucia Perez, who was raped and impaled in the coastal city of Mar del Plata. Um, it was a one-hour one, one work and study stoppage and with protesters dressed in the morning in what was called Black Wednesday. And they really, the protests gained an international character with many, many other countries, both in, in Latin America, but also outside of Latin America, um, having kind of solidarity street demonstrations. I do want to just say briefly, though, that the Nuna Menos movement goes even further back. And the slogan, um, the name Nuna Menos, was inspired by what was called the Nuna Mas, not one more, movement in Mexico, which started in the 1990s to raise international awareness around the epidemic of murders and girls, usually between uh, the ages of 15 and 25, in the Mexican border town of Ciudad Juarez in, in the Mexican state of Chihuahua. Um, and the struggle against femicides in Ciudad Juarez is also where it's generally agreed the term femicidio or feminicidio, which is the Spanish term for femicide, hadn't really existed before. That's where it's kind of generally agreed it started to be used in Ciudad Juarez. Um, so the name Nuna Mas was taken from a line in a poem by the Mexican poet and activist Susana Chavez, who herself was killed in 2011, which is no coincidence. And in slide eight, you can see some pictures of, of Susana and uh, demonstrations in Ciudad Juarez. And I just want to kind of take a moment to note the progression that can be seen just by the slogans taken up by the Nuna Menos Collective in Argentina over the co course of several years. So in 2016, the main slogan was, we want ourselves alive. In 2017, it was no more gender violence and state complicity. And in 2018, it was without legal abortion, there is no Nuna Menos. No to the Macri, who was the, the conservative president of Argentina at the time, IMF pact. And so if you just take these slogans, right, you can just see the broadening and the deepening of the movement's horizons and analyses and the connections that were being drawn between the different struggles. Um, and in slide nine, I have some pictures of the Nuna Menos protests in Argentina in 2015. And then quickly, I just want to talk about the second historical component I wanted to touch on, which is the relationship of the abortion movement to the struggle against the Argentinian, Argentinian military dictatorship, which lasted seven years from 1976 to 1983. And in particular, um, what are called the mothers and the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo, which is the main kind of city square in the capital uh, of Argentina and Buenos Aires. If you're in the middle of the square and you look around, you have the presidential building, which in Argentina is the pink house, uh, city hall, the country's central bank, et cetera. And it's really kind of the center of political activity in the country. 
And the mothers and the grandmothers uh, of the plaza um, are the mothers and the grandmothers of those disappeared by the military dictatorship. And they have been protesting relentlessly since even during the military dictatorship and still to this day. If you go to Buenos Aires and you go to the plaza on a weekend, usually, good chances is you will see them. Um, and they're still demanding the safe return of their disappeared loved ones, um, as well as calling for the, for the trial and sentencing of those involved in the dictatorship for their crimes against humanity. And in slide 10, I have some pictures uh, of the mothers and the grandmothers. Um, and they, they wear a white pañuelo, a handkerchief around their head, which um, is also the, the main logo of the national campaign for the right to abortion. If you, if you look at the green pañuelo, they have the, the white pañuelo in the middle, which is actually a nod um, to, the, to the mothers and the grandmothers. And I bring up the military dictatorship for, for several reasons. One is just to point to the long history of women in Argentina leading the way and being kind of the edge of resistance. Um, and then another is to make a point about democracy, right? When you have a people, almost done, I'm sorry. <laughs> when you have a people whose collective memory is tied to a period of brutal dictatorship and then formal democracy is established, it's not so easy to ignore the rights that you don't get you know, in the, in the supposed transition period. Um, so both under the dictatorship and under formal democracy, abortions continue to be had in clandestine conditions. And it becomes very clear that there are some women, right, who will always be able to have abortions if it's even if it's technically illegal. And actually legalizing abortion is to extend that right to all people. It's about democratization. Um, so, and also, you know, during the dictatorship, women were kidnapped and forced to give birth in cells without care. They were tortured. They were killed. Their children were taken away from them and never returned. Their new relatives never returned. So when the state and that, you know, after a period of supposed democratization, um, says that this is about life and there are, you know, thousands of babies and mothers and relatives unaccounted for, uh, it's really transparent. And I just have a... Uh, another video of, of the Madres and Abuelas in slide 11. Solamente queremos saber dónde están nuestros hijos, vivos o muertos. Angustia porque no sabemos si están enfermos, si tienen frío, si tienen hambre. No sabemos nada. Y desesperación, señor, porque ya no sabemos a quién recurrir. Consulados, consulados, embajadas, ministerios, iglesias, todas partes se los han cerrado. Era plena dictadura militar, la peor de la historia, la más sangrienta y cruel que se vivió en ese país. Sin embargo, estas mujeres decidieron marchar una tras otra alrededor de la pirámide de Mayo que se encuentra en la plaza. Um, I just wanted to say that, um, like Susana Chavez, one of the founders of the mothers of the plaza, uh, Azucena Villaflor was also kidnapped and murdered along with two other mothers. Um, and then I just have a, one last video, very short, um, of some chant, a chant from the night the abortion that abortion was legalized in Argentina. Um, and the rough translation is down with the patriarchy, which will fall, which will fall up with feminism, which will win, which will win. And after that, I'm done. <laughs> Thank you so much. And so a place I want to start is 
In the U.S., abortion is frequently treated as sort of a siloed issue that is of interest to only a minority of people is a bit of a side issue and is not really fundamental to our politics except as some sort of cultural signifier. Um, what you both have discussed and pointed out is that it can function in an opposite way as a mobilizer of, of civil society broadly as a marker of the level of democracy in the country. You know, obviously democracy is dysfunctional when some people can force other people to give birth against their wills. Um, and as something that's tied to deeper political histories of liberation, um, whether from dictatorship or from other forms of political oppression. Um, and so I wonder if you both could speak to what sectors of society were truly mobilized by abortion as an issue, um, what the alliances ended up looking like, um, you know, in a, in a vibrant sort of left civil society, ideally, you know, just as feminist its energy for the broader left, the broader left becomes feminist issues. Um, which sat on the sidelines, which surprising allies did you find? Who was truly mobilized by the fight for abortion? Um, and we'll start with you and then move back to you. I think you broke up a little bit there, Sarah. I mean, you, you froze a little bit, but I, I'm guessing you're calling me first, so I'm brazenly coming in anyway on it. And I got most of the question. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting one. And when Camille was speaking, I was struck actually by the scale of the similarities between the two countries so geographically and in many ways historically apart, apart from maybe the dominance of the Catholic Church. I suppose... The key sector of society that was organized initially were always young people and the student movement spearheaded the opposition from the time of the 1980s when the constitutional ban came in. Uh, small left-wing groups, uh, feminist organizations, again, smaller, more radical uh, feminist groups, and maybe the, the battle that changed over that and what was built on was more of an involvement later on then from the likes of the trade unions. But you were talking about an awful lot of civil society organizations, uh, some political groups, but generally feminist groups, young people, and every sector of society eventually came on board. So that idea, and Camilla talked about it as well, of working to have alliances, to have broad organizations, ones that didn't. I spoke at many meetings where we had trade unionists and good people men who were embarrassed to talk about abortion. Not that they had ever been, they would always have supported a woman's right to choose, but they themselves had never championed it. And making that an issue in the union movement, I think, was, was very important. Coincidentally as well, in Ireland, when the legislation was passed, like Argentina, it was a, a right-wing government when the legislation was being discussed initially, which was interesting. And actually, some of the members of the right-wing parties, when they were exposed to the medical evidence, became some of the biggest champions, actually. Even some from a conservative uh, background uh, as well became in that. So, I mean, again, it comes back to the point, information, empowering people with that information and giving them the confidence to speak out. And the rest pretty much follows. Because again, Camilla's point, like I was struck by the idea of the green scarves and that identity. It was the same in Ireland. There were jumpers, repeal jumpers. Everybody had a badge. 
everybody knew it. Uh, again, that became a, a badge of identity. So, celebrities is a bad word, but kind of famous people or people came out and identified with the cause. It became popularized then, and then the tide began uh, to turn. So I think all of those are maybe um, interesting lessons and, and examples from how the movement organized. Yeah, I, I really agree. I think in Argentina, especially the it was kind of society wide. And I think just talk about kind of a more recent struggle. It's the economic crisis in 2001. It's that was a, a huge mobilizing factor. And, you know, young people today remember that. Um, and it there's there's great overlap. And I think the, the greatest kind of radical radicalization that happened over abortion in Argentina was definitely young people. And it was I think it was radicalizing in several ways. You know, there were young women who went to school with the pañuelos and had to, you know, get into line to get into the school because there was like the principal kind of at the front of the school making sure that every single person who came in had to take off their pañuelos. Like it was a truly, truly radicalizing experience where young people were being told by their institutions, by the by the places they frequented that this was, that they weren't supposed to be radicalized by this. Um, and I think with the change government, especially, um, back when Mauricio Macri was president and it was, you know, first kind of debated in 2018, the, the kind of center left could act as the opposition party. When center left became, you know, uh, came to power, it quickly lost that facade. Um, and it, it, it pissed people off, you know, and you have, you have, um, uh, the president Alberto Fernandez, you know, sitting down and making making pacts with the IMF. And so, if people say you were saying that you weren't going to repay the debt, and now you're making sure that we're getting austerity uh, and going back on all your promises, we know what you're actually like, and we know that you're going to do the same thing about abortion. Uh, and just in terms of the kind of composition of the campaign, you know, there's they're organized by regions, uh, territories, um, and then also networks. So you have the network of healthcare professionals um, for the right to decide, social workers, doctors, psychologists. Then you have the educators who are more focused on the sex ed part of things. Uh, and you have, you know, mutual aid networks, networks who only distribute the abortion pill. There's all sorts of kind of, it's, it's not very heterogeneous. <laughs> yeah. Could I add to that, Sarah? I think, again, it's a similarity that actually the politicians in these campaigns don't lead. And, and in Ireland in particular, there were some who opportunistically wanted to align themselves with the movement after the heavy lifting had been done and get the benefit from it. But in general, it was the people marshalling the politicians. So there wasn't this idea that trust our politicians to do this. The slogan was trust women and the movement organized to deliver a reluctant political body. And that's of the right and the left. All of the parties, the left, were pretty disappointed when they got into power as well. So I, I think that's an important point too. It's really interesting because in the US, I think of there being this sort of layer between the people and the politicians, which are sort of large um, professional political organizations um, that raise money to elect politicians that lobby a lot um, and that generally are not very grassroots, even if we basically agree on the right to an abortion and so forth. And one of the effects that seems to have is that our mechanism for advocating for things like abortion rights is very tame. It's not frightening politicians at all. Um, 
And I wonder if something um, that might be different here is that that is not so much a phenomenon, the power of those NGOs, maybe not as influential with people in these other contexts. And I wonder if that's right or not. It strikes me as being totally right. And I think these professional NGOs can be a real barrier in these cases, because if they own or control various politicians who are on their side, well, then it means all the ones who are not in their lobby list don't have to do anything. You kind of write those people off where the movement doesn't have the luxury of doing that. All politicians, all legislators have to be uh, approached on these issues. And the anti-choice lobby was incredibly powerfully organized in Ireland, financed a lot with money uh, from the US and that as well. But what they did, whenever there was a sniff of anything moving on, on abortion, they would mobilize their troops. They would make sure that the politicians would be swamped with anti-choice messaging. And we found out earlier on that there was about 20 of us who they didn't bother contacting at all because they knew it was a waste of time. I think maybe in the States, it's the opposite. They concentrate on a small group of people and all of those others who are potentially there to be influenced are written off and not appealed to where you've got to contact everybody. And I, I think you're right. I think those groups can actually be a barrier. Yeah, I totally agree. I also think there's an important role of, that socialized healthcare plays in this in terms of like versus the kind of NGOs like in the States. Um, so in, in here in the U.S., abortions happen in abortion clinics. In Argentina, um, all the people I've known who have had illegal abortions in Argentina during during the period of when it was illegal um, and they were that, who had them performed by medical professionals had them in hospitals. So they, you know, they make an appointment with a doctor they know is uh, friendly. You know, it's about something else. It's like a, they put it down as a different kind of appointment and then they go in and the doctor does it, uh, but it's performed in hospitals. So, and now when it's legal, abortions are still, are going to be, are being performed in hospitals. It's not siloed off as a different kind of institution that is supposed to take care of this. It's part of socialized healthcare. And I think in a country like the U.S., when you, you know, uh, Healthcare, free access, accessible healthcare is not considered a basic democratic right. Um, it's a it's a different discussion and a different debate that you're having um, because it's a debate about first of all, healthcare is a right, and then abortion is healthcare. Uh, in Ireland, for example, in Argentina, people already think that uh, healthcare is a right. So it's a different kind of mm. different institutions. If that makes mm. sense. That makes total sense because actually, you know, then the argument we had was convincing people that abortion was healthcare, there wasn't murder and this kind of thing. It was about trusting women. And then and I think the slogans were identical, free, safe and legal was the call. In and to get that as part of the health service was absolutely key. And again, tied in with full reproductive access. So improvement in, in contraception provision and all of these other areas as well built into the full package. I think that, yeah, is an important difference. One of the things you just mentioned, Claire, was American money coming into Ireland in order to um, push anti-choice positions. And I wanted to ask both of you about the role of internationalism, both on the left in strengthening your struggles and also the role of international money on the right. Um, and what roles those played in your um, 
abortion struggles. Um, whoever would like to start, maybe Claire, you would like to. Yeah, I mean, as I say, the money was considerable, particularly from the U.S., I suppose, the evangelicals, the fundamentalist Catholics or whatever, trying to desperately cling on to the last bastion in Europe of of sort of anti-abortionism. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a factor, but it wasn't at the end of the day. No money can buy the hearts and minds of people. If you up against the money, you have an army of citizens. It, it doesn't matter. The propaganda is just over um, their heads in that regard. And the other part of your question was, I can't remember. Oh, the international solidarity. And that was key. It was really, really key. I mean, there were solidarity events organized all over the world where Irish people lived as expats or whatever. We got brilliant advice from other countries. We had international experts devoting their time to come to the public hearings, either in the parliament or in the citizens' convention, uh, which again was televised and so on. You know, like I remember Dutch um, politicians and Dutch doctors and lawyers coming over to talk about their experience of abortion provision there. Great help from the UK, from international human rights experts, uh, Centre for Reproductive Rights, all of that uh, brilliant assistance was really, really key. And on, of course, over the years as well, uh, and it comes back to a point that was made earlier, like the help and support from just citizens in the UK who supported Irish women when they had to travel was just unrivaled. And I mean, ironically, though, in some ways, the safety valve of Britain meant that the struggle didn't come earlier, because if we hadn't had that, the movement would have had to organise earlier and force a situation because women need abortion and they need safe abortion. So if we hadn't been able to get it in the UK, we would have had to organise for it in Ireland earlier. But international solidarity is key and that transfers everywhere. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the 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 abortion strike in Poland was hugely influential. All eyes were on Poland. I mean... And and the the international women's strike over the kind of last five six years, I think the international solidarity was extremely extremely important. As for international money, I mean, all, all of the kind of right wing groups that mobilized against abortion um, are funded by by either the Catholic or evangelical church, um, and you know even the, the clerical lobby in in the Argentinian government is extremely strong. When the when the government debated. Uh, the bill and was trying to, you know, come up with vote on the, the final version of the bill. That it was a it was a cont- contestation between the campaign and the clerical lobby. That was that was really what was at the heart of it. Um, and you have politicians who are, you know, in, in power currently in Argentina who have personal ties to Opus Dei. Um, you know, sector. You know, the Pope actually called up different politicians who are supposed to vote on the bill, asking them not to, um, to vote against it. It was a huge kind of, yes, apparatus that involved a lot of money being poured into into anti-abortion far-right groups in in Argentina. I was going to ask you both specifically about the Catholic Church, um, which obviously played a significant role in both both of your um, places as well as, um, of course, in Poland and, of course, in the U.S. And it's different in different contexts. But I was curious, um, over the course of this battle, did you see any shift in the influence of the church over this issue? I mean, clearly, to some degree, they lost. Um, and so there's some interesting strategic questions there. What, you know, 
what was that, what was, I guess I want to know a little bit more about the role of the church in this case, and also your strategies in, in dealing with that. I suppose in an Irish context, really, the demise of the church predated the last phase of the abortion struggle in many ways as a result of, you know, sexual abuse scandals and so on going on in the preceding decades. A lot of, you know, really, I suppose, diehard Catholics had lost faith with the church and we moved from a position in the foundation of the state where the church was an integral part of the new Irish state after uh, we broke free from Britain to a scenario where actually, you know, people going to mass and so on. It's a complicated thing. Like Ireland is still on paper, whatever, 85% Catholic. Uh, a lot of kids get baptized, they get their communion, but that's it. Like they don't take it to ridiculous lengths, like going to mass or anything like so. They don't really, it's a sort of a, I don't know, it's a lifestyle choice rather than actually embedded faith. And in that sense, the clergy doesn't have a control over the hearts and minds, although the church has considerable influence in the schools and actually in the health service. We, the taxpayer pays for them, but the church still runs them. Uh, and there was some movement on that. But um, to be honest, their, their day was up before that. And we had had a resounding victory for same-sex marriage uh, before that. Uh, which again was kind of people-led. So uh, we did have the pulpit being used to mobilise people. There were big anti-choice rallies, but they just weren't big enough for them. They used masks, there was leaflets, but they don't have the, I suppose, the people going there anymore. They don't have the ear of those people. And a lot of people who profess to be Catholics, and many of whom believe that they are, believe that the church's teaching on these moral issues are something that the church shouldn't be going there. So while they may be Catholic, they say, but my views on this are my own. And uh, I think it's moved on. And it didn't really matter then what, what they tried to do. It wasn't going to be enough. And I suspect Poland is probably in that place as well now. I think a similar thing also happened in Argentina. I think, well, one, one point is that one of the biggest uh, groupings within the national campaign was Catholics for the right to decide, which is actually a conservative se sector within the campaign, because obviously there, there are debates also happening within the campaign. Um, but uh, it, it had direct ties to the government. And even in hospitals, um, Opus Dei had a central role in what are called the ethical and moral commissions of hospitals um, that can be very quickly mobilized. Um, but actually the Catholic church has been waning in kind of popularity and it's being replaced um, by the evangelical church, um, and which is a, a separate kind of phenomenon that I think is applicable to other countries in the region. Um, but it's, you know, the, the kind of, the places where the Catholic church kind of abandoned those populations and those sectors, um, the evangelical church had a really aggressive, almost kind of like recruiting strategy of going to the places where the Catholic church um, wasn't actually giving services, wasn't actually really important part of, of social communal civil life. Um, and the evangelical church took over and I think raises a whole other kind of set of strategic questions. That makes a lot of sense. And um, it's, yeah, the, the shift towards the, the power of the evangelical church is, of course, very interesting in our context as well, where that's something that we've been confronting for for quite a long time now. Um, and I was curious if we think about um, the sort of next phase in this organizing, and I think 
we actually have to wrap up soon. I feel like I could talk to you both about this for much, much longer. Um, is what one of the challenges in the in the states and in countries that have already legalized abortion formally is that in some ways it's harder to mobilize a movement because you're not fighting an all-out ban. You're fighting this horrible patchwork of barriers and limitations and, you know, oh, it's expensive or you have a waiting period. You know, it's this confusing patchwork of laws that just make it difficult up to the point of not being able to access abortion. And that's much harder to fight against than one big no. And so but Ireland and Argentina are perhaps now also in a similar phase wherein technically it's available. But as you both described, there are actually significant barriers to accessing it. And the right is going to continue to try to put up more and more barriers. And so I'm curious how you see your strategy shifting in response to that type of issue. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And I suppose we're, we're about to find out how hard it is uh, in, in the coming uh, review of the legislation and so on. I suppose on, on the good side, you know, the floodgates haven't opened. People see that. It's now incorporated as a part of our health service and people accept that. So that's a real positive. And that, I suppose, gives the confidence to build on it on the, on the next phase. But yeah, you're right. On the other side, they say, I look at for heaven's sake, you've got now uh, provision of abortion in sort of 95% of the cases and people need them, whichever just shut up about the last 5%. Why does it matter? But I mean, of course, it does matter. And I suppose it is harder I suppose it comes back to my point is if there is another out and if there is a way in which the people can get the service elsewhere, well, then that sort of cuts across the movement. But ultimately, it gets to a point, say, for example, if there was a problem with rural provision, which thankfully at the moment there isn't in Ireland, but say in Italy, that's becoming a problem where a lot of conscientious, subjective doctors. So women, but if it gets to the point where people can't access it, that's when people will move. And I'm not saying we ever wanted to get to a situation where women are dying again or any of that to mobilise the movement. We don't. But I think we just have to um, be more cl clever, I suppose, and 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 focus on, on the whole healthcare aspect and focus on, on the trust women bit. But I do think it is linked to the socioeconomic conditions in countries as well. And I think that thread in this discussion was very interesting. Uh, about how healthcare is, is viewed slightly differently in the US, you know. And I am a bit curious from both of you whether part of that answer is staying on the offense. You know, like twelve weeks is not enough. Um, you know how, you know how does the movement stay mobilized and and not not see the ground? Is it possibly by continuing to mobilize to extend the the victory? Well, I think for me, I think it's a case like the, the tragic story I read out earlier about the, the, fam, the family who had the fatal fetal abnormality. It's again hearing people's stories of the damage of the shortcomings in the legislation that we have now and trusting that people, men and women, don't want to see women suffering unnecessarily, that it is a health issue. So I think it comes back to that idea of putting faces on the decisions that women make and this slogan, trust women. And if it's deficient and women are telling you and your sister or your mother or whatever is telling you it's not enough, well, then you've got to go with that. So, yeah, I mean, I think probably something along those lines. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, I think there's, I think this is the debate that the campaign is having right now. <laughs> so I think, I think the, the debate that is going on right now is, do we just kind of put a break on it? Have we won? Do we, that's it. <laughs> and then there are other people, um, sectors of the campaign that are saying, actually, all the medical professionals that know how to perform abortions right now, we trained them. <laughs> the state did not train them. Now we need to like actually shore up the gaps that the state has because it doesn't actually currently doesn't have the resources to implement legal abortion in the way that it has been legalized. Right. Um, the abortion pill needs to be distributed. There needs to be, you know, clinics and uh, sex education curricula that need to be developed. All these things that were technically legalized. Um, but still the, the work and the infrastructure of that that existed kind of underground before the legalization was all done by the campaign. And so where does that go? How much can the state get away with not doing because the campaign's going to step in? There's like all these kinds of open questions that I think we'll just have to see. I think the thing about the United States, I think socialized healthcare is really kind of one of the keys in, in all this and also just the lack of kind of public political spaces, people's assemblies, kind of democratic norms of society are, are very different in the United States. So I'd like to wrap up by just asking you for people who are listening who would like to tap into these struggles and make sure that the abortion work that they're doing wherever they are is connected with the abortion work that's happening elsewhere. Is there anywhere that you would like to direct people to that people should be paying attention to connecting with from your particular abortion struggles or international um, pro-choice organizations that you think people should be um, connecting their work with? Well, I guess people probably are already, but for us now, particularly now, as I've gone to the European Parliament, the Centre for Reproductive Rights have been absolutely incredible in terms of the resource that they are uh, for information. I think in an Irish context, the Irish Family Planning Association have historically been brilliant and have seen this issue really all the way through our, our history on this, they, they have been to the forefront on it. I think the Abortion Support Network and others as well, if you look into any of them, just Google uh, Ireland abortion. There's so many different groups that come up, you, you won't be found lacking. I am just going to uh, plug the group I am I'm currently in, New York City for Abortion Rights. Um, we do a lot of things, including putting on educational events. Um, we have a website. Um, but a lot of our work is around clinic defenses and kind of looking at the specific right-wing groups that are mobilizing against abortion in this country that have gained a lot of ground um, and all the kind of specificities and schisms and weird dynamics between them um, and kind of a more ideological and kind of tactical vision of, of clinic defending and what it means to, to raise kind of consciousness around the issue of abortion. Um, and then another thing I would recommend if you're interested in Latin American struggles for abortion is to follow, I don't have a Twitter, but I have an Instagram and I follow the National Campaign for Abortion um's, uh, Instagram. And they're always posting different struggles around, around the region and the campaigns and, and videos and infographics and that kind of thing. Um, so I found it enormously helpful and also inspirational to just be scrolling through my feed and, you know, seeing struggles elsewhere. So. Thank you. This, um, this has been a fantastic conversation and actually 
provoked a lot of thoughts for me and thinking about um, where we're going. And, you know, as someone who works more on the journalism side of things, the sorts of stories we could tell and the connections we can make. And I do hope this will be continue to be one of many international conversations about abortion, because if you imagine a, a truly global movement of, you know, as you put it, Claire, the silent majority that knows that we need this as a human right, it's it's very powerful. It's a very inspiring image. And I've learned a lot just in the last hour. Um, so I want to thank you both very, very much. Um, I also want to thank um, the sponsors, Chicago DSA, Socialist Feminist Caucus, Chicago Abortion Fund, um, and Chicago for Abortion Rights, as well as Lex Magazine. Um, and thank you very much to you both. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Great to talk. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.